If you're listening to this on the audio feed, you might have noticed that this episode is a week delayed, but you can get early access to our episodes by becoming a paying member. Welcome, Richard. We have a number of questions here that came through on your social media. And so let's just jump right in to these amazing questions. And I wanted to start with the first one. I wanted to start with for a very particular reason. If complex organisms exist in other parts of the universe, would evolution by natural selection also occur there? Would the organisms look similar to ours if there was an Earth-like planet around a sun-like star? Okay, that's two different questions. The first one is, would it be a Darwinian type of evolution? And I think it would. Um, I wrote a paper about this called Universal Darwinism, which argued that Darwinian natural selection, some form of Darwinian natural selection, is the only process that's capable of giving rise to the sort of complexity which we recognize as life. The only other alternative that's ever been suggested is the Lamarckian theory, the the use and disuse, the the more you use a bit of yourself, the, the bigger and better it gets and then the inheritance of acquired characteristics. So you use a certain muscle a lot, it grows bigger, and then you pass that on to your children. That works for a few things like muscles and bones. It doesn't work for almost all of life, like eyes. And eyes don't get better because you use them, that kind of thing. So the Lamarckian theory, even if there's a planet somewhere where... um there is inheritance of acquired characteristics. Lamarckian theory doesn't work. Nothing else has ever been suggested. So I'm pretty sure that it'll be Darwinian life. Now, the second question is, would it look like our kind of life if the planet was similar? I used to think no. I used to think that science fiction authors were rather naive when they sort of peopled their um, extraterrestrial planets with things, creatures that look pretty much like us. I'm now not so sure. I think it might be like us because if you look at the history of life on our planet, It is uncanny how convergent evolution works, how very often the same solutions come up to the same problems. The Australian fauna, for example, is extremely like the rest of the world. Um, The parallels between the Australian animals and the... um, and the rest of the world are very striking. And so I think I rather agree with Simon Conway Morris, who thinks that actually it wouldn't be unlikely that if there is another planet like ours, maybe even creatures rather like us might evolve. And also carnivores and herbivores and big carnivores and little carnivores and big herbivores and little herbivores and so on. So but that all presupposes that the planet is like ours. If the if it's the gravitational field is very different, then no, that's quite different. I mean, if say it's a much weaker gravitational field, then you'd expect that animals the size of an elephant would be built along the lines of a spider. Or if it's a very strong gravitational field, animals the size of a mouse would be built along the lines of a rhinoceros. But if it was the same distance from its star as ours is, and if the chemical balance was roughly the same, I think it's not unlikely that you would get a whole range of animals similar to ours. The next question is a natural liftoff from the previous one and the reason that I asked this question first. What are your thoughts on the recent UFO, UAP phenomenon claims that we have crashed spaceships of non-human origin in our possession? And just last week, we had a congressional hearing that was all in the news here. So I'm sure people are interested in your thoughts on this subject matter. Yes, this kind of claims happens all the time. Time, um, I'm very skeptical because I think that although I'm pretty sure there will be extraterrestrial life, I'm also pretty sure that uh, it'll be so spaced out that it's highly unlikely that it would ever visit us or we could visit them. I think the greatest hope is that we may be visited by radio. I think it's very unlikely that we would ever be visited physically. I think there's a much better hope that we might be visited by radio communication because 
If you've got a sufficiently powerful transmitter, then you can broadcast radio waves out in all directions. And so a great sphere, an expanding sphere of planets will be enveloped in this, in this um, sphere of communication. So I think there's every hope that at some point SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, will pick up signals by radio. But I think it's very, very unlikely that we'll ever be visited physically by any kind of physical spacecraft. Do you hold any theories around what it is that people are reporting? And I ask that only because last week's congressional hearing seemed to seem to push this conversation into a new forum that we've never seen before. Uh, I can't so comment on that. that. Yeah, no, I I, ca- I can't comment on that. I haven't been following that that news. All I know is that um, for decades now, reports like this get investigated and they turn out to be nothing. But I, I, I admit I haven't looked at this particular case, so I, I can't comment. I just repeat, I would be very, very surprised. Great. Okay. Next question. Is there an evolutionary advantage to human consciousness and the illusion of the self? This is the big one. Um, I, it's, it's a deep philosophical question. What is consciousness? As far as Darwinian survival value is concerned, it's tempted to think that a robot it was completely unconscious, but which behaved in every way to benefit its own survival based on its sensory information could survive perfectly well. And um, why we have this added bonus of consciousness stuck on the top is a bit of a mystery. It's there. There's no doubt about it. I mean, we all know we've got it. I know I've got it. I suspect you've got it because you're pretty much like me. And um, so it, no, it, is a, it is a big problem. The, the notion of an illusion of the, of the self, I like that idea. I think it is an illusion. I think it's a kind of virtual reality self. And I read various philosophers on it. I don't have much to say about that. I'm not a philosopher. I think it's a very interesting question. And it's a question which I don't even know what the solution to it would look like. I don't know whether the solution will come from biology or computer science or from philosophy. Um, I would I would love to know. It's it's not a thing that I have the expertise to answer. It's a, it is a very interesting question. And I actually was thinking that if we think of emotional pain as potentially a derivative of consciousness, you would actually think it would be a maladaptive part of evolution. Yes, I'm not sure about that. I think emotional pain, it's not obvious why that would be any more maladaptive than anything else. Um, It's, I mean, physical pain, it's easy to see what advantage that has. It's a warning to the animal, don't do that again. If If the animal does something which leads to bodily injury, which is painful, then the next time it does that, it might die. And so to treat pain as a as a warning, I think it's perfectly plausible, and uh, and it's also we need to wonder why it has to be so painful. I mean, you think that perhaps if it's just a warning, a little red flag in the brain, a little notice that pops up saying "Don't do that again" would suffice. But I think maybe very speculative here, the animal might be tempted to behave in a way that's bad for its survival because it gets some kind of pleasure from doing so. That wasn't well expressed, but but I think there there must be a reason why it is so very, very painful rather than just a uh, something equivalent to a red flag going up. Sure. Interesting. Okay, we'll move on to the next question. As the absence of evidence is not necessarily the evidence of absence, how can you be so sure that there is no omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient God? Nobody can be sure. Um, I think of it as rather like saying, how can we be sure there aren't leprechauns and fairies and unicorns? You have to have something more than just saying, well, there's no evidence against it. 
And um, there has to be some kind of positive evidence in favor of it in order for you to take it seriously. So I think that the absence of evidence is the same for leprechauns and, and fairies. And I think the positive evidence is also equally weak for all of them. And you've often spoken about a scale, about a scale of belief. Where does that sit in, in yes. and where do you um, sit in, on that scale? Okay. In, in The God Delusion, I made a seven-point scale um, from zero, meaning absolutely confident that there is a God, to, to seven, absolutely confident there isn't. And uh, I, I think I call myself a 6.9. And one of the things I use that scale for is to get rid of the rather silly idea that, that if there's no evidence either way, therefore it's 50-50. It isn't 50-50. It'll, it'll be something else. That, I mean, there's no, no reason to say that just because we have no positive evidence either, either way, therefore it's exactly equally likely, because you could say that about leprechauns as well. Well said. If human cognition evolved purely for survival, how can we trust it to produce true beliefs about reality? Yes, I've met this argument before. It's quite interesting. I think you can trust it very well because natural selection favors the animal taking decisions which lead to its survival. And rational decisions tend to lead to your survival. If you uh, didn't have a brain that was capable of evaluating evidence in a rational way, in a scientific way, actually, then you wouldn't survive. Um, the scientific method is the way you discover the truth. And if you did not use, I mean, you don't have to be a scientist to use the scientific method. A, a plumber, an electrician uses the scientific method when diagnosing a problem. The electrician says, well, could the problem be here or there? And let's test, put the, put the, the voltmeter here and put it there. Let's try disconnecting this and see what happens. There are all sorts of little experiments you can do. And in a wild state, our wild ancestors would have done something very similar in order to survive. So the brain must be fashioned by natural selection to take decisions which are based upon evidence in a rational way because otherwise it would not be a good organ for survival. So what does that say about me? Because I am the world's worst decision maker, perpetually. I don't think it says that. I mean, I'm pretty bad myself. But I mean, what you mean when you say that is that you, you dither, you can't, you can't decide whether to do this or, the, or that. It doesn't mean you take irrational decisions. You, you, don't, you, don't, you don't take bad decisions. Yeah, I guess I just don't, never know which decision is actually the more rational one when there's thousands of confounding variables. Yes, well, because you've got a very sophisticated mind, but, but actually, if you think about it, it's not true. I mean, you're, all the time you're taking decisions which are, which are good for you. That's probably true. I'm still here. I'm still here. So yes, there we exactly. go. Yes. Okay, I really liked this question, although I found the, the framing of the question itself interesting. I'm curious if you would have a reframe or not. Why is the basis of all life on Earth, natural selection, so inherently cruel? Yes, um... Natural selection is cruel, and Darwin recognized this in, in one, I mean, he, Darwin, for example, said something like, um, uh, it's impossible to believe that a benevolent deity would, would have created the ichneumonidae. These are, these are wasps which um, lay their eggs in caterpillars or similar prey, and then the eggs hatch out, and then the larvae eat their way through the live creature. And Darwin saw this as excessively cruel. On the other hand, Darwin also, when talking about the suffering of prey animals when they're caught by a predator, by a lion or something, he said something like, the death is swift and merciful. So Darwin clearly worried about it. There's absolutely no reason why natural selection should not be cruel. Uh, natural selection doesn't care 
whether animals suffer distress. All it cares about is survival. All it cares about is whether the predator gets a good meal. And if the predator eats the prey alive, and um, then that, although that's terribly cruel and terribly painful for the prey, there's no reason why natural selection should penalize it. Could go even further, perhaps, and say that natural selection is almost bound to be painful and cruel, because if it wasn't, if there was some mercy, some, some lack of suffering, then somebody isn't doing their level best to survive in the most economical way possible. So I think, I think natural selection is almost inevitably going to be not wantonly cruel, of course, but painful. Sure. If you think that a component of atheism is accepting that cruelty, is that, do you think that could be, oh, well, that actually kind of goes into this other question from another listener. So maybe I'll just ask that question. What message would you give to people who are trying to find meaning in life without religion? Uh, and I'm curious if you think this acceptance of the natural cruelty of life plays into that at all. The message that I would give, I think, is make your own life, make your own satisfaction, get your satisfaction from human relationships, human love, from art, from music, from science, in, in my case, and all those other things as well. We are fortunate in our lives today in that we don't have to struggle for survival. Um, we have a pretty cushy life on the whole unlike our wild ancestors who had to look over their shoulders all the time for fear of lions and starvation. So we do have the freedom, the leisure to enjoy things like art and uh, the pleasures that life has to offer. And they don't have to be selfish pleasures. They can be, they can be very altruistic pleasures. So that, that's the answer to the question of, of what um, hope can you have Insofar as religion gives you consolation for things like um, fear of death or bereavement, wishing that you could see your loved ones again in heaven, that kind of thing, of course, atheism does not offer you that. But um, who wants to be comforted by a falsehood? Some people do. Uh, it's, I suppose it's another example of the question, would you wish your doctor to be honest with you? I, I, I would, and I think you would. But there are people who would prefer not to know if they've, if they've got a, a terrible disease. And I think um, it's courageous and it's brave to face up to reality. And the reality is that we only have one life and we should make the most of it. Sure. I'd love to take it one little step further, which is that and this, um, I remember in our last conversation last summer, we were talking a little bit about atheism and the kinds of makeovers that might help it within uh, communities of young people. And I'm curious how you feel the atheistic community can best wrap their minds around uh, creating meaning out of cruelty, out of the cruelty of life. I think that's something that religion does very well. And what, what is your advice there or your thoughts there? Well, how does religion create meaning out of the cruelty of life? It simply says God has a larger plan, right? Yeah, yes. It's so a pretty empty promise, this belief I think. that they're suffering. I think someone has yes. this belief that they are suffering and that at the end of the road, there'll be this big consolation prize for their suffering, oh, well, yes, which makes the yes. suffering better. Yeah, that's true. Well, and really, to answer it the way I did before, that, that, that let's be realistic. I mean, you, you cannot, if you can derive satisfaction from a falsehood, that's, 
that's fine. I think um, I wouldn't say you can make something out of the out of the suffering. That's not the way I would put it. I would say you get on with life and you get on with doing the positive things of life um, and don't um, wallow in suffering, don't wallow in fear, don't wallow in anxiety, but think positively and live your life to the full because it's the only one you've got. Thank you. Okay, we'll move on to the next question. On one question, you said, why questions are silly questions. Can you please explain what you mean? Yes, I think I was quoting, I, I believe I was quoting my colleague Peter Atkins, who was giving a lecture in Windsor and the royal, some of the royal family were there. And one of the royal fa family asked a question of, of this form. It's all very well you scientists can answer the how questions, but what about the why questions? And Peter said, why questions are just silly questions or words to that effect. There is no reason to expect that a why question deserves an answer. A why question deserves an answer in the human sphere. If you ask why somebody is doing something, then you very often will, it's a perfectly appropriate question to ask. Why are you cooking dinner because you're hungry? I mean, all sorts of things like that. That's fine because humans are purposeful beings. And so it, it makes perfect sense to ask a why question. But to ask something like, why are there mountains? Or why does the universe exist? Or um, why is the sun there? Um, that only, the only sensible answer to that is, in fact, a how question, is the, is the question of the physical antecedents which lead to the sun being there, the universe being there, the mountain being there. You answer why the mountain is there in terms of plate tectonics and erosion and things like that. But by a, if a, by a why question you mean what is the purpose of a mountain or what is the purpose of the universe or what is the purpose of the sun, then it's just a silly question. There's no, no entitlement to ask that kind of, of question. I mean, there are plenty of questions you can ask because they, there is an English sentence which you can use. You can say, what is, the, what is the color of hate or something like that? Well, that's a perfectly grammatical sentence, but it doesn't deserve an answer. It doesn't mean anything. Yeah, it's assuming an intention, right? Lots yes. of three-year-olds love that question, so we'll just keep them at bay. Y yes. Why? Why? I mean, there, there was some a study that showed that um, I think three-year-olds or very young children anyway were asked why there are rocks in the field. And below a certain age, they said so that animals can scratch themselves on, on them when they feel itchy. That's, uh, it assumes that the, the rocks have been put there for some kind of purpose, whereas, of course, the scientific answer is the rocks are there because some geological forces put them there. Right. Is there any scientific proof that a person's consciousness can exist after death? Well, no, of course not. I suppose, in a way, you want to put the question the other way around. Is there any proof that it doesn't? Um, and there isn't any proof one way or the other. You, all you can do is make likelihood judgments. Our consciousness is clearly produced by our brains. And um, these are evolved organs which evolved over millions of years and cr consciousness gradually uh, arose during, the, during evolution. And when your brain decays, there is absolutely no reason to suppose that your consciousness will continue. So on grounds of plausibility, the, the balance of, of plausibility is heavily in favor of there being no survival after death. And uh, that's something we need to live with. It's not all that horrifying a prospect if you think about it, because we've been, as I think Mark Twain said, I was dead for billions of years before I was born and never suffered the smallest inconvenience. I love that quote. Sure. The moment before birth. I mean, I don't remember it, so it seemed to be just fine. I mean, what were you doing when the dinosaurs were around? Nothing. When, all, all that time when the dinosaurs were around. There's, there's a delay on the line. Is, yeah. Considering that the human brain has not grown much in the last 20,000 years, why did it take so long for humans to gain scientific knowledge? 
Yes, well, of course, the human brain has not grown in the last 20,000 years. It probably hasn't grown for the last million years. Um, why did it take so long? Well, Newton said, if I've seen far, it's because I stand on the shoulders of giants. And we all stand on the shoulders of giants. Science progresses cumulatively um, because each generation of scientists builds on what was there before. And it's very, very striking how as the, as the centuries go by, equally brilliant people, I mean, N Newton was probably one of the most brilliant people who ever lived. And, but we've advanced beyond Newton. Aristotle is probably one of the most intelligent people who ever lived, but Aristotle was wrong about almost everything. Um, and it's, just, it's because of generation after generation, standing on the shoulders of the previous generation and learning from the previous generation, science is preeminently a cumulative enterprise, perhaps more so than any other. And that's the answer to the question. Were you ever pressured? I found this question to be very interesting. And again, you might choose to reframe it, but it's an interesting one nonetheless. Were you ever pressured to hype up scientific results or downplay shortcomings? I don't think I was ever pressured to, no. I wonder whether the question means pressured by other people or pressured by oneself. Um, certainly not pressured by other people. I suppose any scientist is tempted to, um, when they have a pet theory, they're tempted to sort of want it to be true. And one of the beauties of science is that it has methods in place to counteract that pressure. Scientists have, um, for example, the double blind trial, which is the sort of gold standard of medical research, is a, an elaborate device to avoid bias. So that when you are testing, for example, a new drug to see whether it's effective against a disease, you have a control and you compare the experimental with the control and you do it many times over. And the point is in the double blind is that neither the doctor nor the nurse nor the patient nor anybody involved knows which is the, con which is the control dose and which is the experimental dose. It's all locked away in a computer and the code is broken only at the end of the experiment so that there is no possibility of bias creeping in. And I think it's one of the things that marks science out. Science stands out because it has these methods in place to avoid the very human temptation to be biased in favor of your pet theory, or even to be biased against it. If you're very, very scrupulous, you, don't want to, you do not want bias either way. And that's what the scientific method ideally uh, is set up to avoid. I think that's a wonderful explanation. And if I'm reading between the lines of that question, it feels related to a very popular discourse right now happening in the public, which is why does science often get things wrong? Or why, you know, a year or two years after a study comes out, we see criticisms of that, new criticisms of that study. And how do we, how do we kind of avoid those pitfalls? And what is it about that process that leads us in different directions? That, that is worrying. It is worrying the way um, scientists sometimes go in fashions and there's a fashion to, for so-and-so and then it, 10 years later it's put into reverse. And you have to beware of that. You have to beware of journalists jumping on findings and publishing them when they're premature. You have to um, ideally, if it's, especially if it's an important finding that really matters, you have to wait until it's been repeated and repeated in different labs. And this is another of the safeguards that science um, has in place but it doesn't always work. And I mean, there are even, of course, scientists who cheat, and that's another worry. I hope they're not all that common, but they occasionally are unmasked. And um, so, yes, um, science is, is not perfect, but it's more perfect than any other way, method that's been devised. I think that's really well said. And unfortunately, with social media now, one study can come out, one news outlet reports on it, it goes viral, everyone sort of accepts it as truth, as a headline, without even understanding the nuance behind it. 
Um, and this has led to a widespread, at least in the United States, I think, a mistrust in quote unquote science, but it's not really in science, the mistrust. It's simply the reporting of one single study or this lack of nuance that we have in our, in our reporting to the public. I think that is worrying. I, I, I quite agree. And I think we need to guard against it. And another problem is the so-called drawer effect where editors only want to publish findings that are definite. And so there may be, there must be lots of studies that are done that are inconclusive, that don't show anything. And so the, the results are just put away in a drawer and ignored. And so you get a bias. And because statistical methods are designed to discover the, the likelihood that a result as extreme as the one you've got could have happened by chance. If you only publish the, the experiments where it does work, and you throw away a hundred experiments where nothing nothing happened, then the statistical inference that you draw is invalid. And that is a, a real problem. The remedy to it, I suppose, would be that scientists should publish on the internet, since journals won't want it, but in the, on the internet, the intention to do an experiment before they do it. And so um, it is then possible to look back and see how many experiments were done that were, in fact, never published. And so push towards getting the statistics a bit more right. That would be so helpful. Do you believe that the repositories that are being created by artificial intelligence could be helpful in that matter in terms of bringing more of the scientific research together, creating a space for it to all exist? Is that something that you see as a potential solution to that problem? That's an interesting thought. I hadn't thought of that. I, th I suppose it could be. I think they're really rather exciting, these artificial intelligence programs that have been developed. They're exciting and frightening at the same time. And I think we haven't really got to grips with either the possibilities or the dangers. What do you think about fine tuning in the universe and its conclusion of the existence of an intelligent being who set it up? I think fine tuning is very interesting. It's, it doesn't bear upon an, an intelligence setting it up um, for reasons I'll come on to, but um, it does seem to be the case that physicists um, have measured half a dozen or so fundamental constants, um, things like the gravitational constant, which are very critical in the sense that if they were ever so slightly different, the universe as we know it wouldn't come into being. Um, there wouldn't be galaxies, there wouldn't be stars, there wouldn't be chemistry, there wouldn't be planets, there wouldn't be us, wouldn't be evolution. And so it can be argued that the, these constants are very finely tuned um, and uh, if they weren't finely tuned, we wouldn't be here. Well, we are here, and so evidently they, they, are, they are finely, they were finely tuned. This, the temptation to think that they were tuned by some intelligent being is, 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 is hopeless because I mean, that doesn't explain anything, it just pushes the problem back to how the, how the intelligence itself got tuned. The most promising solution, well, there are two possible solutions, I think. One, one is that physicists don't yet know enough, and it'll turn out when they have a theory of everything that the values of the fundamental constants will all fall into place and be understood. The alternative theory, the multiverse theory, is that we live in one of billions of alternative universes in each of which the laws of physics and the fundamental constants are different. And only a tiny minority of those universes has their fundamental constants and their laws of physics tuned in such a way as to give rise to life and us. And obviously, this is the anthropic principle. Obviously, we have to be in one of that minority of universes because that's where, because here we are. We're thinking about it, talking about it. And there are, the, the multiverse theory wasn't just dreamed up to solve that problem. The multiverse theory follows from the inflationary model, which is 
in vogue and seems to be favoured by the majority of physicists. So there are independent reasons for thinking that there is a multiverse. And that seems to be the dominant theory at, at present to account for the apparent fine-tuning. It's, it's an aspect of the anthropic principle. Very interesting. How do you explain convergence of traits in diverse species like wings and bats and birds? The pressures to fly are the same. The, the physics of flying, the problems that you have to overcome to fly are the same in bats and birds and, and insects and pterosaurs. And so it would be extremely surprising if they did not come up with the same solutions. They, they're the same solutions insofar as the physics is concerned, but the actual anatomy of their wings is different. Um, in the case of insects, the wings are nothing to do with the skeleton. They're, they're, or rather, they are to do with the exoskeleton. They're just outgrowths of the thorax. In the case of the vertebrates, that's pterosaurs, birds, and bats, they all use the front limb. Um, there was a dinosaur that had wings stretching to the back limbs as well. But they all use the front limb, but in different ways. So in the case of bats, they have a spread out hand so that the fingers, all the fingers of the hand are greatly elongated and there's a skin membrane stretched between the fingers. That's how bats do it. Pterosaurs did it by having just one enormously enlarged finger, uh, the fourth finger, the, the ring finger, uh, and um, then it stretched back to the foot from there. And birds do it by having the the whole arm as the strut that the wing is um, attached to, and they do it, and the flight surface is actually feathers rather than skin. So there are revealing differences between the various groups of animals that fly, and but the as far as the overcoming the physical problems is concerned, they all have the same, they all solve the same physical problems. Okay. If you could ask a question to Charles Darwin, what would it be? I so, would be so overawed. I mean, I, a Japanese television crew, I've told the story before, but a Japanese television crew once subjected me to this. They dressed up an actor as Charles Darwin and um, he came and knocked on my door and I had to uh, answer the door. And Mr. Mr. Darwin, such an honor to meet you, um, do come in. And then the thing there was that the, the conceit of the program was not that I would ask him questions, but that he would ask me questions about what had changed since he, his lifetime. And that was a fairly easy one because a lot, of course, has changed. And I was able to tell him about modern genetics and, and he was a good actor and he played his part well of being flabbergasted by it and so on. What would I ask him? Well, I suppose maybe I would ask him, what, what took you so long? Once you had the idea in the 1830s, why did you wait till the 1850s before publishing it? Was it because you were just simply wanted to get all your ducks in a row, wanted to, you wanted to gather all the evidence together before you published? Was it because you were afraid of upsetting religious people, particularly perhaps your own wife, who was, was deeply religious and was indeed uneasy about her husband's um, theories? It, it would be nice to know why he waited so long. And as you know, he, he was precipitated into publishing only when he received the letter from Wallace, the paper from Wallace, um, showing that Wallace had independently hit upon the same idea. I would have thought that if I'd had the good idea he'd had in the 1830s, I would have published straight away. I mean, the greatest idea anybody ever had, according to Dan Dennett, I'd have published straight away. Absolutely. I wonder if there were any other sociocultural things that were happening in that 20-year period as well that might have influenced his encouraged, encouragement to do so. Discouraged, yes. Yeah. Discouraged. Um, that's great. Okay. This is a big question. What is life? In a way, it overlaps with the earlier question we had about um, life elsewhere and how likely it would be to be Darwinian life. I mean, life, I think, is 
huge complexity. The world of physics and chemistry is not complex. It's comparatively simple. It's very difficult to understand in the case of quantum physics, for example, but it's not complex in the sense that living things are complex. Living things are deeply complicated machines for engineering their own survival and reproduction. And the even the simplest organisms that we know, bacteria, are already prodigiously complicated. And so I think different people define life in different ways. But for, for me, huge complexity would be the diagnostic feature of life. And I, as I said before, I think the only way in which such complexity can come into being is by some form of Darwinian selection. It doesn't have to be at all alike in, in, in detail to ours. I think that also means there's got to be some kind of genetics. I think the probably the genetics has to be digital. Um, otherwise, it's not accurate enough, not high fidelity enough. But further questions like, um, would it be cellular? Would, it, would living things elsewhere be divided into millions of different cells? I don't know. I mean, that's an interesting question. And I suspect the answer may be yes, but I couldn't formulate a very clear reason for it. Would they have sex? I don't know. I mean, not all organisms on our planet have sex, so possibly not. Would the biochemistry be similar to ours? Would it be based upon protein? I think yes. I think that protein probably has properties which are almost necessary for the complexity of life. And that implies it would have to be carbon-based as well. So I think there are similarities which probably apply to all life, things like being carbon-based, protein-based, Darwin-based, digital genetics, but also there could be dramatic differences as well that still would not disqualify it from being called life if it's complex. I love that answer. There was a lot of poetry in there. What was there before the universe? That's a question for physicists, and many physicists would say there's no such thing as before. Some physicists have said it's rather like saying what's north of the North Pole. Time began in the Big Bang. And so the, the very word before doesn't mean anything. That's not a thing that the human brain finds it easy to grasp. And uh, I have the same problem as everybody else does on that. I don't see why there shouldn't be a before, but physicists tell me that that's the way it is. Time itself began in the, the Big Bang. On the other hand, our Big Bang might be only one of many, and there could, be, there could have been many Big Bangs before ours. It may only be our own local universe which, in which our own local time began. So you have to ask a physicist that question. We'll bring a physicist on next time. Okay, we've got two more questions here. Uh, can a woman become a man and a man become a woman? No. Simple answer. Of course not. Um, this is one of the big hot political hot potatoes of the day. There are plenty of people who suffer, not plenty, there are a few people who suffer from what's called gender dysphoria, where they feel they've been born into the wrong body. And um, uh, I've read books by people that, that have convinced me that this is a real condition, a real psychological condition. And so one has to be sympathetic to such people. And if if, if they prefer to be called by a female name, if, if they start male and want to be called a female name or vice versa, then one should, should honor that and, and respect that. But that doesn't mean they really have become the other sex. You can't become the other sex. Sex is one of the, one of the very few actually true binary divisions that we have in biology. All sorts of other things like um, large and versus small, old versus young, etc. These are all continua. But sex really isn't a continuum. It's 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 a, it is a, a straight binary. The the um, number of possible intermediates is negligibly, vanishingly small, if if any at all. 
And so the, the, the division between the microgamete product producing sex and the macrogamete producing sex, which in the case of mammals is also labeled by the XXXY chromosome system, means that, that in, in my dictionary at least, um, you, you cannot uh, change sex. Uh, you can change gender where gender is a kind of fictive sex, the sex that you feel that, that you are, or you can retain the, the, the gender that you, that you feel you are. That's another matter. That's a psychological question. And I'm a biologist and I answer as a, as a biologist. Sure. And there is a secondary question to that, which I think jumps off from what you just said uh, about this being a psychological matter. Could it be that psychology plays a more significant role in shaping the lived experience of gender than the biological binary? Yes. I mean, if if anything shapes it, it it would be, it would be psychology. There there are people who psychologically feel themselves to be in the, in the wrong body. I read long ago, the book um, Conundrum by Jan Morris, who started out as James Morris. Uh, and I was pretty convinced by her feeling of unease that she was born into the wrong body. And she, as it were, she showed her credentials by going through a, a horrendous series of operations and hormone treatments and things. So she, she really meant it. I have rather less time for people who it looks as though they, um, say, want to break f- female swimming records or something. And so they just stand up and announce, I am from henceforth a woman, and therefore I'm allowed to go in for women's swimming competitions. I don't have much time for them. I think that they, they might very well be chances. It's, uh, it's certainly, I'd say, one of the most politically hot conversations of our time, um, but also a very important one. So I, I hope that more of these conversations are had uh, openly. We do have one last question, and then we are we are done with our first ever Q&A. What would be your comment on the public burning of the Koran in Sweden? I'm not in favor of deliberately provoking people by doing something like that. It seems to me to be a, an act of uh, wanton um, provocation. On the other hand, I think I'm a passionate believer in freedom of speech. And I think that if somebody does uh, an, an act like that, not um, as an act of hostility, but to, as it were, assert that they have a right, they have, they, they have a right to the freedom to do that. Then um, I think burning the Quran is going too far. But something like doing the um, the, the cartoon, draw, drawing the cartoon of of Muhammad, that there's the, the celebrated case of the, the Danish cartoons of a few years ago. That I think a gesture like that to to as it were assert freedom of speech freedom of artistic freedom is something valuable. And uh, I think that when I think Christopher Hitchens tried to organize a campaign whereby everybody joined hands, so to speak, and and in in solidarity with Salman Rushdie and with his um, with his translators and with the Danish cartoonists and so on, that to simply to to dilute the the responsibility for displaying freedom of speech, I think that that was a valuable gesture. But I I would not applaud anybody who goes out of their way to burn the Quran. No. Thank you for that. I would love to encourage anyone and everyone to send questions, whether it be on your YouTube, your Twitter. I don't know what more social media accounts will be drummed up for you. I'm excited to see. And also, Richard, what is your general intention for these Q&As and your hope for them so that when people are submitting questions, that gives them a frame of reference? This is the first one we've done, and I've enjoyed it very much. Thank you so much for it. So I think carry on the the way we have. I I think it's been great. 
Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to answer all of those questions. Richard, please, if you're watching, submit more questions on Twitter and on YouTube. We'll be choosing our favorites for the next episode. If you enjoyed this episode, you can show some support by leaving a review.